You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Heat Nation. You're listening to Locked On Heat, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Thank you for subscribing on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Himalaya. My name is David Rommel. I hinted at this in my bonus episode from Sunday, which you should totally download and listen to if you haven't already, or even if you have, listen to it again and again and again. But today is the start of a theme week across the Locked On NBA Network. The theme for the next two weeks will be to discuss the best seasons in franchise history. Those will be deep dives into Miami Heat history with special guests, in-depth looks at the numbers, and focusing on some defining moments that every Heat fan remembers very clearly. I'm excited to talk about this, and I hope you will be just as excited to hear about it. So let's get started. The first challenge was to look at which season to talk about first. Given Miami's great success over the last 25 years, including three championships, five trips to the NBA Finals, as well as some other really special seasons, I finally decided that there's no way that I could possibly overlook the 2012-2013 season as the best in franchise history. From a numbers perspective, this season was by far the winningest in team history. They won over 80% of their games, and they finished with a regular season record of 66-16. and The season also featured the second longest win streak in NBA history, 27 straight games. The Los Angeles Lakers, of course, hold the record for 33 straight wins, and the Warriors actually won 29 straight, but that was over the course of two seasons, so I definitely don't think it counts. Of course, the 27 straight games a high in franchise history and one of the most incredible moments in franchise history. Anyway, as far as the weekly theme is concerned, there's no set standard or anything like that. Just take it in whatever direction each host thinks is best. So like most things, I think it's kind of right to start at the beginning. The Heat were coming off their second championship in team history, having beat the Oklahoma City Thunder in 2012. If you recall, the 2011-12 season, which definitely received some consideration for best in franchise history, I'll be honest with you, was a lockout-shortened one. That team started their season in mid-December, played just 66 regular season games, and had to play a very shortened schedule. And while the Heat would eventually dispose of some quality opponents on their way to the title, there was a lot of talk about adding an asterisk to the season because it was shortened. There were arguments that Miami was better suited for the season because they had all this top-tier talent. They didn't have to incorporate any new players. Uh, that they also had played in the finals a year before, so they weren't as rusty. A lot of it was obvious bullshit. They were just looking at reasons not to promote Miami or to take away from things that they had been able to accomplish. Of course, there was still some of that lingering hatred from the 2010-11 season, despite the fact that the Heat had lost the, the finals the previous year to the Dallas Mavericks. The, the Heat also uh, had the second best record in the East and just fourth best in the league. So San Antonio and Chicago both notched 50 win seasons. So it wasn't like Miami was clearly more dominant than anybody else. Uh, there was also some talk that, uh, you know, obviously the Heat had been one of the teams that forced the lockout. So there was a lot of negativity still. It wasn't quite as intense, I think, as the 2010-11 season. season. But still, the 11-12 season did have some kind of negativity towards Miami during the course of that season. Again, because of the lockout, because of everything else. But it was also a season of redemption. Following their loss in 2011 to the Mavericks, the length of the lockout, of course, played a factor. Many people, especially the most casual fans, they had gone past that hatred. The lockout made people desperate for basketball. And while there was a lingering resentment for Miami, they're getting together, um, that never really seemed like the consistent theme there. It wasn't as intense, again, as it was the previous year. 
and winning the title in 2012 was just kind of accepted. There wasn't any of that kind of rooting for an older player like Dirk Nowitzki. There wasn't this idea, uh, false narrative of the good organic team like the Mavericks versus the the group of mercenaries that the Miami Heat was widely viewed as. So there was nothing like that. There was the two young, talented teams against the Thunder in 2012, and Miami just happened to prove to be better. People remembered all of a sudden how good a player LeBron was and that he won an MVP trophy in that year. So in 2012, he was also the finals MVP. And then following all that, he was also a part of the 2012 Olympic team that won gold and that went a long way towards erasing a lot of the negativity that he built up in 2010. He was no longer the villain, but simply viewed again as the best player in the game. And so a lot of the negativity had kind of passed away. His Q rating was back to where it was before, maybe even higher. I think I recall, I couldn't find anything about that online, but I recall that in 2012, following the Olympics, following the championship, following the MVP success, that all of a sudden he was once again viewed by advertisers and consumers as one of the more popular players, that his Q rating rebounded greatly from where it was in 2010, where he had to kind of adopt this whole persona of being a villain and everything else. And so at the start of the 2012-13 season, it was a new one. But I remember a lot of the talk around that year was how good Miami would handle a full season of play, whether they could be good for a longer period of time, whether the year before was just a fluke. They were still looking at ways to poke holes in what Miami had accomplished. But it was also a good challenge. Whereas they proved that they were talented and very good in 2012, this was a way of seeing whether or not they could sustain what they had accomplished. It was, again, a team dominated by a big three. LeBron James had achieved MVP success. Dwayne Wade had notably taken a back seat and turned over, quote-unquote, control of the team to LeBron. They had made their, kind of just rebuilt their team with a number of free agents, but they had also kind of rebuilt their identity. This was not the team that they were in 2010, 2011, whereas they just kind of dominated teams that first season because of the strength of their big three. This was a much more complete, well-rounded group. They played defense at a high level. They just did things much, much better. In 2012-2013, I think a lot of people looked at that, whether or not it would be an extension of the previous year or whether or not it would just be proof that the year before was a fluke. I think a lot of people still went into 2012 thinking that Miami was the title favorites. They were, according to Vegas and other gambling associations, they were the odds-on favorites to win the title in 2012. But from the more casual perspective, there was still some negativity there. There was still some belief that Miami might not be as good, whether or not they couldn't uh, duplicate title success, because it is difficult. Regardless of how good a team is, winning a title is very, very difficult. No team had done it since the year before, I mean, sorry, since the decade before, when there was the three-peat in Los Angeles with a very dominant team that had Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, both at their respective peaks. When you look at a franchise as accomplished as the San Antonio Spurs, they've never won two championships back-to-back. So clearly, it is a difficult challenge for any team. And for Miami, it would prove to be an equally daunting challenge. But it was one that was made a lot easier when they would get some help in the form of two key free agents. I'll talk about those in the next segment. You're listening to Locked on Heat. Take the best 
team in the world, and what do you do in free agency? Well, you fill whatever holes you need to fill, of course. And that's exactly what the Miami Heat did uh, by adding Ray Allen and Rashard Lewis in the summer of 2012. Miami had lost Roni Turiaf and Eddie Curry as free agents. Turiaf joined the Clippers after he had been bought out the season before and added to Miami's late-season roster right before the playoffs. Eddie Curry obviously had been with the season with the team all season long in 2011-12, but he wasn't really much of a factor. He was just a big body, uh, a guy who had never unfortunately lived up to his incredible potential when he was first drafted by the Chicago Bulls. And he was basically on his way out of the league uh, when Miami gave him a chance at uh, winning a title, something he did do. So he is an NBA champion, whether you like it or not. Uh, He would eventually go to the Dallas Mavericks following the Heat season, and he wouldn't really play there. He would eventually be cut and go overseas for a couple seasons before eventually retiring But if the 2011 finals showed anything, and that's something that I talked about when I recapped the series a few weeks ago, it's that Miami's bench absolutely needed retooling. They added Shane Battier in 2011 after the lockout, and they also had added Jawan Howard, but they also re-signed Mario Chalmers and James Jones, and they began retooling to a much more perimeter-based team. In 2012, they kept adding key players to build around the big three. They found a model that worked, and it's one that's worked for winning teams since then, to find the right players around star-level talent, especially older veterans that are looking for a title, and that's where Lewis and Allen fit in. I'll start with Lewis. It's hard to kind of put things into context considering how his career had played out early on, but if you recall, Rashard Lewis came out of high school, was signed to a huge contract. He was drafted by the Seattle Supersonics. It might have been the Seattle Sonics at that point. They had dropped the Super, but either way, Rashard was probably one of their last key acquisitions. He actually played alongside Ray Allen when they were with Seattle, and he was one of the players that a lot of uh, owners conceded had sort of forced the lockout because of the incredible contract they had signed. It was a six-year deal for about $118 million, just shy of $20 million per year. So it was that kind of contract that made everybody suddenly realize, holy cow, we're paying players a huge amount of money. And uh, it was unfortunate because he had been a great scorer alongside Ray in Seattle, averaging over 20 points per game for three seasons kind of showed what it would be like to be a bigger body that could stretch the floor. He was a three, he was a four, but he was almost as big as a five in today's game when you consider uh, his overall size and everything else. He was really a very, very big player who could just space the floor incredibly well. And so when he was signed to the Magic for this $118 million contract, he was viewed as a key component there. They had J.J. Redick, um, they had Jameer Nelson, they also had Dwight Howard. So they had this team... And they were just looking to kind of space the floor a little bit more effectively. And that's where Lewis really fit in. And it worked. Although he was getting paid a whole heck of a lot of money, they did make a run to the finals in 2010. And that was a very deep team with Hito Turkoglu and a couple of other players. A very, very good squad that had a legitimate chance at winning a title. And unfortunately, they just lost to the Los Angeles Lakers. But then eventually, the, the Magic kind of thought the Lewis experiment had run its course. And they eventually traded him to the Washington Wizards, where he had one season there, put up some decent points, but it wasn't exactly like a huge success. He was already towards the tail end of his career. And again, it was a lot like Joe Johnson, a name that's much more familiar for most Heat fans, in that the contract seemed to overshadow almost everything he did. Like, he couldn't have a 20-point-per-game season without somebody going, oh, yeah, but he's still getting paid a shit ton of money. And it was just rather unfortunate that it was just, that was the first thing that people thought of. 
And so by the time 2012 rolled around, he had not just been traded to the Wizards, but eventually he was traded in the offseason for Emeka Okafor to the New Orleans Hornets. They weren't even the Pelicans at that point. They were just still the Hornets. And it was the last year as contract. And they actually used what was known then as the Amnesty Clause to waive him, effectively making him a free agent in 2012. They took the cap hit. They wound up saving, I think it was partially guaranteed, so they wound up saving some money and then kind of eating a $14 million cap hit that year just to waive him. Uh, and that was a, a pretty clear indication of where they viewed his talent at that point in time. So by the time 2012 rolled around, he was an older player. He'd been beaten up around league circles. His defensive issues had been maximized. Like everybody had kind of been exposed, rather. And, and everybody knew that he was never going to turn into the superstar offensive player that a lot of people expected him to be. And so you could excuse that sort of defense from Tracy McGrady or Allen Iverson, but not from a player like Lewis, who never averaged more than 18 points per game. But the Heat were adding him because of his shooting and because he was a veteran looking to do whatever it takes to win a title. Something that Lewis himself alluded to when he was signed uh, in July uh, of that year. This is a quote from the story from the Miami Herald in mid-July after he had signed with the team. He says, you've got to double-team LeBron James. You have to double-team Dwayne Wade. You've got to double-team Chris Bosh. Then you think they're going to leave Ray Allen open? They've got to leave somebody open. So I have to go shoot a million jumpers tonight and go knock them down. Reportedly, Lewis passed up a, a much more lucrative deal with the Atlanta Hawks. He was even supposed to take a meeting with the Hawks and then canceled it at the last minute, knowing that he was going to have a chance to sign in Miami. The Hawks could have paid him considerably more, according to the re uh, report, but he chose to sign with the Heat on Wednesday. And so uh, he, he made the decision to, to join the Heat. He says, when Pat Riley's having a conversation with you and talking about winning a championship, he puts you into the conversation. He puts you into that lineup. And so uh, he was already getting paid because of the buyout from the New Orleans Hornets anyway. So it wasn't like he was going to lose a huge sum of money. He was going to get paid regardless, but he realized that it was a good fit for him. They had a lot of all-stars in that talent, and he was just going to be more of a, a complimentary role player. He says he's at the point where I've been on all-star teams. He's played for 14 years, made a pretty good amount of money. I'm hungry to just win. I'll do whatever it takes. If that's coming off the bench, if that's playing five, five to ten minutes per game or 30 minutes, whatever it takes. So that's exactly what happened. He was uh, he obviously sacrificed both a role as a more prominent player perhaps in Atlanta. He also turned down bigger money. And all in all, Lewis was a pretty good contributor. He played in 55 games for Miami during the 2012-13 season. He averaged about 5.2 points per game. And similarly to what he thought, it was around 14 minutes per game. But he shot 39% from three-point range, and that's what he was there for. That He was there as a guy who could space the floor, as LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris were dominating the, the, the offense for the most part. He was a guy who could provide some scoring. Like Most of his shooting came from the perimeter, and it was good that he was able to knock down that shot at 39%. But again, he was just... I think the addition of Lewis showed that Miami's model of adding complimentary role players, all of whom are hungry to win, is something that every championship team has done since then. When you look at what the Spurs were able to do with guys like Boris Diaw and others, when you looked at the Warriors were able to do with uh, Andre Iguodala and, and Sean Livingston and, and Zaza Pachulia, that was the model. And of course, it was one that LeBron himself would take to Cleveland for 2014 and 2018 when they would add guys like J.R. Smith and, and others. It was just a winning strategy. It made a lot of sense. And uh, it, it, I think Lewis was a natural extension of that. He was a solid role player during the next season. 
But it's this next player that would wind up saving Miami's championship hopes. You're listening to Locked on Heat. Remember to listen to and subscribe to new and archived episodes of Locked on Heat on Himalaya, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're on iTunes, please leave a rating and review, especially if it's a good one or even if it's a bad one. Like I said before, I always want to hear from all of my listeners. If you have a problem with my weekly theme or if there's a disagreement or even if there's just a point that you think should be brought up and included into any upcoming episodes, Please feel free to use any format possible, whether it's a DM or whether it's a review on iTunes. I do take those things very seriously, and I do look at them as regularly as possible. So please keep up the good work of staying in contact with me. I'm talking about the best season in Miami franchise history, a weekly theme that you'll be able to hear across the entire Locked On NBA network. But when it comes to the Heat, perhaps no player was as crucial to the 2012-2013 season as Walter Ray Allen Jr., Ray had played in 16 seasons in the NBA by the time he joined Miami, having played for the Milwaukee Bucks, the team that drafted him, and then eventually being traded to the Seattle Supersonics, and then the Boston Celtics, where he won a championship in 2008. If there was a reason for the incredible buzz that Ray's addition brought to Miami, it was first and foremost because he was a Hall of Fame caliber player. He's a 10-time All-Star, one of the best shooters in NBA history, I think a lot of people kind of have seen what Ray became in the NBA as far as being a clutch shooter, a guy who was going to knock down free throws at a high rate, who was going to hit the three-point shot at a historic rate. But at the same time, you kind of overlook the athletic explosiveness which defined him so early on in his career. He was a guy who could get to the rim, who could be a forceful defender. And, uh, well, maybe maybe forceful isn't the right word, but an impactful defender. And obviously a very athletic, explosive guard, one of the best two guards in the league. And when he joined Miami by that point, it was a different version of Ray, a much more reduced one. But uh, if you really think about what the, the, the buzz about Ray Allen joining Miami in 2012 was the fact that he had chosen to leave the Boston Celtics, a team that had dominated the Eastern Conference since 2007. Uh, the Celtics were, and I probably don't need to remind you about this, a major rival to the Miami Heat and specifically in LeBron James. James had often talked about needing to get past the Celtics hump, something he could not do when he was in Cleveland before in 2010. If you ask a lot of Cavaliers fans, LeBron may or may not have checked out of a playoff run against the Celtics. The Celtics would wind up going on um, to lose to the Orlando Magic on their way to uh, you know a continued successful run for them. They won the championship in 2008, went to the finals again in 2009, and they looked like they were primed to be a dominant force in the East for a number of years until Miami put their big three together in 2010. The point being that they were never able to achieve or duplicate that championship success, but they were still a very good defensive team. They were a team that was going to beat you up, that was going to make things difficult for you. And of course, for Miami, um, it was a huge hurdle for LeBron James to be able to get past the Celtics uh, in you know 2011 and also in subsequent years. But this felt like a big blow to that. The fact that Ray Allen said, no, I don't want to be part of those Celtics teams. The Celtics team that had defined the East for a number of years. It just seemed like they were always the team that everybody had to go through because of their incredible defense, because of their presence, whatever it was. They always felt like they were a thorn in everybody's side. And for Ray to choose to leave the Celtics 
it just felt like a major step for for Miami to prove that not only were they the more palatable, more uh, they were the better destination for free agents, but also that their star was rising. And I think that's what a lot of people saw in 2012 is after they won their first championship against the Oklahoma City Thunder, that all of a sudden people saw this big three team and said, oh, they're poised to make more runs. And if you want to have a good chance of winning a title, this is probably the best team for you. And that's what Lewis alluded to in that quote that I would say also uh, earlier. And I think that's what Ray was thinking when he joined the team. Now, there were other decisions there, too. There were other factors in that decision. One, the chemistry, as we've heard a number of times, within that Celtics locker room had deteriorated greatly. Uh, Rajon Rondo, notably, did not have a great relationship with Ray Allen, also saw himself as being a... more of a factor in the locker room, more of a, a decision maker and, and kind of cast Ray to the side. Ray has alluded to it in his book as well as in other places that it was just it was not necessarily a, a great place for him and he was ready to move on. And uh, I think it's a big reason why he decided to leave there in the first place. But he's also been relegated to a mostly bench role. He was a super six man, uh, a scorer off the bench. And even though he was still a great player, a guy who could stretch the floor, could do a number of things, they went to Avery Bradley as the starter. This was a long time ago, and he had chosen to come to Miami because he was going to have a more prominent role, not as a starter necessarily, but also as just a guy who could fit into that locker room a little bit more effectively. And I had totally forgotten about this, and looking over the decision there, uh, it seemed like Mickey Arison was the first person to actually acknowledge the fact that Ray Allen was going to join the Heat. He tweeted something out, something about to the effect that he was in London. And it's sorry, I'll read the exact tweet. It's 2:30 a.m. in London, and I was just woken up with great news. Welcome to the family number 20. That's what he wrote about Ray Allen back in 2012. So, uh, Arison breaking the news, and eventually, of course, everybody confirmed the decision. Ray had his uh, press conference alongside a former teammate and Rashard Lewis. And it was just a very feel-good moment for Heat history. He took less money, too. Uh, the Celtics were offering him a two-year deal with considerably more money. And Ray took the uh, the lesser contract to come to Miami. So that was extra salt on the wound. Not only did he leave the franchise, he took less money. It was not just a confirmation of the, chance, the fact that Miami had better chances of winning a title, but it was also a huge FU to the Celtics franchise. And I think that's... A, a big thing for a lot of Heat fans is that he came to Miami choosing to leave Boston and, and preferring this roster above all else. And, of course, he would wind up being a huge factor in the playoffs, something I'll definitely be talking about at some point during this week. But during the regular season, Ray was also a huge factor. He appeared in 79 games, zero starts. Unbelievable when you think about the fact that he wound up not starting a single game during that first 2012-2013 season in, in uh, heat, or heat uniform. But he did average about 26 minutes per game, about 11 points per game. He was the fourth leading scorer behind LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris. And more importantly, of course, shot 42% from three-point range. Not much you can say there. I think for a lot of people around the league at the time, it was kind of viewed as another addition there. Um, Shane, having been an impactful player the year before during Miami's title run, was the first, I think, of of players kind of viewed as, well, they're going to join this Heat franchise and continuing to add the rich get richer kind of thing. I, I remember, look, the jokes have been there for years. Every time LeBron wanted a player added at the trade deadline or every time there was a buyout candidate that was a high-level player, 
there was always talk about him joining LeBron, and, and maybe it started here, and for good reason. You need to add depth throughout the course of the season. You just you don't build a title winner that way unless you add depth. There's only so much talent you can have, and unless you're going to have five potential Hall of Fame players playing at the same time like the Golden State Warriors, the reality is that you're going to need a strong bench to back them up. We learned this in 2011. We saw the Mavericks win a championship because of a stronger bench than Miami's, despite Miami's overall better talent. But in order to continue to compete against deep teams like the Celtics, like the Spurs in the West, like the Thunder and others, it was very essential to add key components, guys that would do what the big three was not capable of doing. Neither LeBron or or Dwayne were considered legitimate three-point shooters. And although Chris eventually became a three-point shooting threat on a much more consistent basis, it was not the strength of his game at that point in time. So adding Lewis and, of course, adding Ray Allen uh, certainly helped in that regard. And, and, you know, obviously it proved to be very prescient of of, of Pat Riley to understand how the game was evolving and what was necessary for him to compete for a title. It paid off wonderfully, and I'll be talking about that run throughout the rest of this week. Again, going into the 27-game win streak, going into the finals run, and everything else in between. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for today. You can connect with me on Twitter using the hashtag AskLHeat or email me at LockedOnHeat at gmail.com. I'm David Ramil signing off and thanking you as always for your support. Yeah! Wrap it up,